What's up, everybody? Chris Dover here, head trader, head owner, founder, <laughs> Pollinate Trading, host market gaggle. Uh, get at me, pollinatetrading.com slash subscribe, join the email list and check out what we got going on. Uh, that's our weekly newsletter. And that one is completely free. And sometimes it's a, it's a jam packed mile long letter. And sometimes it's uh, just clear and concise couple things going on. Get on there. But without further ado, I want to go straight into today's topic. And it's been brought up by our favorite Ray Dalio, uh, talking about the threat of dollar losing its reserve currency status. In essence, the point being is that the U.S. is printing money as fast as it can. Uh, we got this stimulus bill coming out, and nobody's going to want to peg to a reserve currency that's going to destroy their economy. And so his point is that we're probably going to see a change. And <clears throat> the headlines have been pretty, uh, pretty dramatic over the last, um, geez, I don't know, uh, couple of years about a dollar debasing. And let me be completely clear about this. I want to point something out. When, so for the past few months, pretty much since summertime, everybody's been talking about the dollar collapse. It, was, it went from about 100 down to 92 in the course of from about, I guess it was an April high down to the August low. That's a pretty big move, but I want to pull back and take a look at the last 40 years of the dollar. And we can see a couple of spots where the dollar really has spent a lot of time. It seems that this, you know, the 105 range is something of a, maybe even slightly above 100 is probably a better way to say it, like right in here. It spikes above it, but for the most part, it stays right around this 100 level and in between. But even more importantly, what we've seen is outside of the uh, big interest rate spikes up to you know, 16, 20% in the 80s and the dot-com bubble blowing up and 9-11 and everything else, we haven't really spent a whole lot of time above that 100 mark. It's, it's not that common that we spend a lot of time above 100. What is, more, uh, what is more common is we spend a lot more time below this 90 mark. And so while everybody's coming out saying the dollar is the, uh, you know, dollar is dead and, and, you know, it's crashing and everything's going to zero and all that, you need to put it in perspective. You need to look back a few more than a few more years because since the 1970s, actually even the 1960s, we've spent a good amount of time below that 90 level. And in fact, we spent a whole decade from 2004 to 2000, I guess it was 2015. So we dropped in 2003. So that's like 12 years that we spent below the, the 90 level. And then in the 90s, we spent a good chunk of time below it as well. And so you might think, okay, well, whoever's in president, that's whoever the president is, that's probably who you know, is whatever the, whoever the president is, that's what the dollar is going to do. And you have to understand the, the fiscal and monetary policy and how things work there. I'm not going to get too far into those details, but government has a way to, with policy, to shape the place of the dollar. And, and what I want to talk about is 
why the dollar will be incentivized to go lower and why it's not really that big of a deal. And in fact, it's a pretty good deal. So we're chatting here in uh, October of 2020. It's been a banner year. Uh, the market has been crazy. Uh, we've had COVID and riots and just all sorts of chaos. It's a presidential election year as well as a, a Senate year. And one thing that COVID and this pandemic showed us was how reliant we are on the world's currencies and you know people to really, um, the way we were reliant upon other countries for manufacturing, manufacturing of masks, manufacturing of PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, uh, manufacturing of drugs. The vast majority of that is handled in China. And we've been in a bit of a trade war with China for about three or four years now. And when we are in a trade war, you don't want to be giving away your best negotiating tactic. You know, one of our best negotiating tactics was the ability to, uh, you know, put tariffs on China for certain things. We're looking at, you know, where they were stealing, allegedly stealing technology from us and all these different things. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and now we have this huge reliance on the, on the Chinese manufacturing of drugs, of PPE, and all sorts of supplies. So we discovered that really quickly that we were very vulnerable. And the, in order to manufacture a lot of those products, including semiconductors, so let's, let's bring technology into this discussion, bringing those products back to the United States for manufacturing is a very expensive process. Now, we could talk about North America, which would be Mexico, the United States, and Canada, to where manufacturing could be a lot cheaper in those regions, uh, Canada and North America, and especially where uh, Western Canada has really been affected by uh, the oil prices. There was a big boom, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the carpet got taken out or the floor got taken out from underneath them. So there, there's a potential opportunity there. But let's talk about bringing manufacturing back to North America, back to the United States. And what makes that feasible is that we can produce the product at a lower price than we can sell it for. And in macroeconomics and, and microeconomics too, most, more importantly, the, the value of what you sell has to be higher than the price people are getting for it, right? And then of course, the, you know, the manufacturing costs have to be lower than the price that people are getting. So you find this perfect little balance of people think that they're getting more value than what they're getting. And then you're, you're creating it for less value than what you're selling it for. So there's a, a good demand spot right in the middle. And one thing that makes that important is exports. If we can sell products to other countries because we're making a cheaper product, a better product, something that they feel is more valuable than what they're paying for, they'll buy it. And how one way we could do that is to make their currency stronger versus ours. So the Euro, for example, the pound, for example, the yen, the Aussie, the Kiwi, the Canadian dollar, the, uh, the pesos, um, all the different, the, the francs, all the different, the reals, all the different currencies of the world. If they say, hey, I can buy semiconductors from China, Taiwan, or the United States, 
you know, the, the first choice is probably, uh, depending on what country you are, is, is uh, you know, your first choice is the cheapest. That brings all sorts of different, if, if, if other businesses around the world have the ability to get great microprocessors, chips, and things like that at a discount that, you know, the perceived value, then that changes manufacturing of electronics. And you can move the, you know, the, the Silicon Valley brain trust away and you can start looking at uh, creating products, especially in a world where everything's remote, you can start creating products in different countries based on chips from the United States. Um, we can manufacture, we can bring manufacturing back. And if there's demand for product, factory owners, uh, engineers, um, you know, inventors can then cheaply create products here knowing that they're, they can sell it for a premium or, or at least a higher price uh, in the future. And the customers would value that because they're saying, okay, well, we know that it's from the United States and it's, we're not going to be paying as much shipping cost. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley, they're kind of the, you know, the leader in technology around the world. So, you know, it would be kind of nice to be able to get certain technologies right from the source, as opposed to getting the designs and everything, and then having them manufactured overseas. So that's one really interesting thing. Now, you know, the PPE, the drug manufacturing, all of that coming onshore is also a, um, a, would be a really interesting headwind. All that would be very, very possible if the value of the dollar versus another currency was lower, like it has been for the better part of the last 40 years, except for a couple of exceptional moments. And one thing that really makes that exciting is that, well, or not exciting, I mean, more viable is we have this multi-trillion dollar uh, bailout package that's about to happen. What does that mean? They're going to be printing dollars. What does printing dollars mean? The value, there, there's going to be more value out there. This is how you make a cheaper dollar so that people will buy your exports. And I mean, it's pretty obvious that that has been the game until about the mid 20, about 2015, where it really shot up. And, you know, there's a number of reasons why quantitative easing, uh, but that pretty much is over. We're in an entirely new cycle and how we fix a lot of that cycle is going to be down here. It's going to be, instead of offshoring everything, there's going to be a big push for onshoring. And, you know, Alex Barrow of MacRops and I did a podcast last week. You can check that out, search for the market gaggle in your favorite podcast player. Uh, Alex and I talked about how a lot of everything, instead of money that has been, think about how powerful the United States has been and how much growth has happened over the last uh, almost 15 years, uh, 20 years, 30, 40 years, where everything was being pushed overseas. Now imagine that manufacturing and those jobs coming back to the United States. In Arizona alone, I, I live in a place where we have an $18 billion um, investment in semiconductors coming to the state here. That is probably going to be backed up by some of that government money. Uh, and I'm not, I'm sure that's not the only place that they're negotiating in Pelosi and Mnuchin or negotiating and talking about that, you know, who gets what's, what states get what sort of allotments and, you know, what industries are going to be getting some of this money, all that's going to be coming back to the states. And so what that means is there's going to be a boom in inflation for sure. And 
that comes back to where th this is what really is what you should be hearing about when you hear a dollar crash. And it's no different than it has been for the last hundred years. Inflation's coming. So if you had $100,000 today, you locked it up into a bank or in a safety deposit box or you know, in a, in a uh, safe in your house under the mattress or something. And actually, let's say a million. If, if you could go buy a million dollars worth of a house today, 2020, and instead you just put that money in a safe or in the bank, no interest, in 10 years, how much of a house do you think you would be able to buy? I pretty much think overwhelmingly, we would all assume that even if there was a housing bubble that happened again, you probably wouldn't get in 10 years, the price of a home that you would be able to buy is probably not going to be as good as it will be today. The Tesla, the, the, you know, the, the Mustang, the F-150, the Audi, none of those are going to be as cheap as they are today. The price of a Starbucks, that's not going to be as cheap as it is today. So what you're actually, what you should be hearing when you hear about a dollar crash is the, the buying power of my cash is now worse or will be worse in the future than it will be right now. Even if we have these big spikes, it doesn't really work unless you're living outside the country. So for example, when I was living in South America, I was paying about $1,200 a month in rent from 2000, about 2006, 2007 through 2014. So the entire time that we had this weak dollar policy, I was paying 1200 bucks. Within six months, the cost of that same apartment was $600. It doubled uh, or it got cut in half. And as you can see, that's not pretty common. That's not all that common. Um, most of the time it's down in this area. So that means that the value, if I'm getting paid in dollars and I'm paying in local currency, I'm paying twice as much. And that's what we're about to experience. That's, that's what it would be like sitting here. So thinking about a dollar crash, don't think about it crashing like the you know, 1929 stock market crash or 1987 Black Monday, those sort of things. Think about your buying power deteriorating. There's almost zero or 100% chance that we're going to be down in this 70, 80 range uh, for a long period of time until you have major stresses on the system like 9-11, uh, like this major recession back in the, the you know, coming out of the, the, the stagflation in the 70s, uh, major inflation and, and like, you know, calming that down. But at 0% interest rates, negative real yields, and meaning the dollar zero and you're, and you're, you're losing value of the dollar and your bonds are at about zero, that's negative rates for savings, your best game plan is to hold things like the S&P 500, gold, Bitcoin, all that. Now, I'm not going to get too big on the bullish case for Bitcoin, but I will say that I did some, I did some work on it. Um, there's definitely, you know, if you, if you just mathematically look at the potential of Bitcoin, Pretty much the way Bitcoin works is you have 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be uh, produced. It's the current leader in, in as far as cryptocurrencies go, it's, it's the, biggest, um, the biggest one out there. And it is if with 21 million and a market cap of, let's just do the math here. 
you know, it's like a quarter, a quarter trillion or something like $250 billion is the total crypto space, crypto space. There's 21 million of these cryptos out there. And if you know that you can store the value of that crypto, meaning if you buy one Bitcoin, you always have one Bitcoin, whether it's 10,000, 13,000, 100,000, or a million dollars per Bitcoin. So for me, I have a good amount of my money in gold. I have it in uh, the US equity markets because they're going to benefit from it when it's cheaper to buy US dollars and you're getting negative real yields. So if you have your money in Euro, if you have your money in pound, if you have it in Franc, Hong Kong dollars, you can buy US dollar now and invest it in, at a cheaper amount so you can buy more Tesla, you can buy more Apple, you can buy more uh, QQQ, SPY, whatever it is as a foreign investor. So with a weaker dollar, that brings in a lot more opportunity. So you have Bitcoin as a hedge, to if you know, first of all, the every incentive is for that to go higher, uh, un, unless you know something comes out and, and improves it. Um, every incentive for it to go higher, the U.S. equity market. Every incentive, and especially indexes. If you understand how incentives work, you should always look at where incentives are when you're looking at deals, when you're looking at investments, when you're looking at things, and you want to engineer incentives for your outcome when you're putting together products, when you're putting together deals, when you're putting together your businesses. And the way the equity indexes work is like the S&P 500. They basically kick out the weak, uh, the weak hands, the low performers, and they bring in the high performers. So the S&P 500 is always optimizing for high performance and the market leaders. So when you, know, you hear about the FANG stocks being the major holdings of the S&P 500s because they're the best performers. That's why it's by design that happens. And if they're the best performers, guess what happens? They get the best interest rates. So every incentive for the portfolio of the S&P 500, the NASDAQ 100 or the Dow 30 is for the best performers to be in there. And if they can actually get um, loans, if they can issue bonds because they are the best performers, they can get all the money in the world. If, if you're looking at bonds that are just not performing, like if you can get convertible Teslas or you could get convertible bonds on Apple or things like that, then that's an interesting way to get into a stock being paid a little bit of interest and outperform. So they can get all the money in the world. So it's a power effect. So now things like NASDAQ, things like Apple, you know, the big ones can get all the money they want. And now we can get, we have low dollar uh, costs here. We can increase manufacturing in the States. We're re kind of redistributing the way the population COVID made a lot of the coastal, you know, uh, bubbles burst and people have moved into the interior. They've moved to places with good internet. They moved to places with, um, you know, great outdoors with different law structure than, you know, what happened in California with the lockdown. It was, it was pretty draconian and it's coming back. And then they're increasing taxes and they're doing all these other things. So a lot of people are leaving for Texas, for Arizona, for Colorado, for Utah, for, you know, the interior states that still offer, well, that offer a, a different lifestyle. And a lot of people have some problem with the way the politics are ran and, and high taxes. So the people that move to, from, uh, blue states to red states, thinking that they're not going to have to do that if they continue that voting power, or you know the things that that they that are virtues to them, 
and bring them into these traditionally, you know, very different type of uh, geopolitical environment, it changes the entire region, right? I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying it, it changes the landscape, makes things look a lot different. So there is a lot of changes. And, and when you have a government that is looking a little bit more blue, perhaps, you have a lot more government subsidy to help bring in manufacturing, to help bring in businesses to do things. Or you have more red and that you know lowers corporate taxes. So now a lot of these places will be able to bring manufacturing from the coasts or uh, you know the 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 head trusts from the coast and, and into the interior of the country, which allows for much easier transport from Canada, United States, Mexico, right up the middle, and then distribute it uh, horizontally. So there's a lot of cool, interesting things that are coming. And, um, you know, the doom and gloom of, of, you know, the dollar crashing is actually not what you think it is. So if you're watching this, be invested. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people are certainly very bearish uh, constantly, but it's not a good way to look at where things are. We're going to have hiccups. We're going to have bumps. We're going to have problems all along the way. Uh, there's a reason that Ray Dalio is talking about all this stuff because his number one product offering is store, you know, uh, uh, the all weather portfolios, the ability to um, put your money in with him and still have that money and that buying power at the end of the day. That's his biggest product. And that's why he's the largest hedge fund in the world. So it, I'm not saying that he's still advertising for his closed funds, but he's, <laughs> he's not, 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 not advertising. Uh, it's his brand, it's his product, it's everything. And so understand the incentives that he has when he talks about these dollar crashes and all these other things. Cool guys, that's what I got. Uh, PollinateTrading.com slash sub, uh, subscribe. That's, uh, I'm, I'm putting out the, the weekly newsletter there. It's free. Again, sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small. And if you really wanna get going on what we're all about at Pollinate, you can join the lab. It's a private group of traders. We're systematic traders, we're hedge fund traders. Majority of us are prop traders. We do have family offices in there. Uh, we have, you know, high net worth individuals, but the core group is, uh, or the, the core methodology behind it is the systematic trading, building your own systems. Now I offer, I, I provide my trading systems to the members. I teach my uh, trading system, to the members, and we have a plan to get through it. The whole purpose to teach these strategies, the failed vol breakout strategy is it teaches you, it's, it's there to rewire your mind of constantly thinking bull market, bear market, the world's ending, the world's, uh, it's the best thing in the world. And understanding that in trading, we're there to just come in, get in, get out, make our money and continue to grow it. And as you build the, your knowledge and your skill back testing and, and trading over and over of the failed vol breakout, you learn some core skills that then you can stack on and you can get into the vol breakouts, get into the big trending type moves. You can understand how, when to get into a trade laid into a move. You can look, you can understand where trends are, or big moves are about to end. But that all starts from the base, get that fail ball breakout strategy understood, do the work, collaborate with the other traders in the group um, and share. 
And then within a little bit of time, you'll be thinking on ways to build your own strategies based on these principles. It's, you know, you probably like, I don't think you're going to find better strategies than mine. That's not to say they're the best strategies. I'm just saying that they're going to teach you the basics. And eventually you're going to want to have your own strategy because intellectually it's more interesting to you to do something else, but you get that knowledge based off of my strategies. And at the end of the day, if you're getting 72% win rate and you know, you're pulling down two to five hour a month on my strategies, probably that's the best you're going to do on your own strategies, but that's not the point. It's not a, it's not a contest of like my strategies are better. It's a contest of, or not even a contest. It's, it's the game of you own your own strategy. You've put in the time to build your own strategy. You've tested it. You've tried it out with other people. You bring people on. We got traders who are doing live streams with other traders, building their own strategies, trading them. But, you know, there's no, there's no requirement that you have, that you can't live stream and work with other traders at all. There's no, Hey, this is Christopher show. And you got to do that. Not at all. There's a bunch of traders in there who are skilled. We got live prop traders who are trading real prop money, some trading at multiple firms and, you know, some trading very large accounts, big hedge fund traders, multi-billion dollar funds. And they're all in the, um, they're all in this group with us. And it's, not a bunch of scammers. It's not a bunch of people in there talking about um, all the different things that don't really matter. Everybody's very focused on helping each other out and doing great trading. So paulinatetradings.com slash lab is how you find that. Um, I will be finishing up the course. We're putting together a free course for everybody in the lab uh, that you'll have access to for life if you do join with us. Um, working on it. We're getting there right now. Be sure to like and subscribe down below. I'm going to be doing a lot more videos, hopefully, as long as, uh, as, long as everything keeps, you know, the world keeps be being interesting and I've got ideas to talk about. Hit me up in the comments, share this out with your friends and yeah, let's, um, let's, uh, let's make stuff happen. <laughs>